Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Music and Spinner.com, where you can get free MP3s, exclusive interviews, and more. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 213 for September 10th, 2009, Cracking GSM. Security Now is brought to you by Go to My PC. Skip the rush hour traffic and save time, money, and frustration by working from home with Go to My PC. For your free 30-day trial, visit gotomypc.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers all things secure and peaceful and calm and all things insecure and horrible and nightmarish. And one guy does it all. He's our expert on security, the one and only Steve Gibson of the Gibson Research Corporation, GRC.com. Hey, Steve, how are you today? Well, Leo, you know, we almost didn't have this podcast. What? Yeah. Did you almost get run over by a bus? No, I almost didn't finish Michael McCollum's newest book in time. <laughs> Were you reading feverishly? So you read the third volume of the Gibraltar series by in less than a week. Well, he gave it to me. I got it Friday afternoon. So that's where Labor Day weekend went. You read it in three days. And wow. you, I, well, I couldn't put it down, literally. Oh, I mean, I, yesterday morning uh, from 7 to 1030, I read and I, my eyes were a little wet. At several points. I mean, it's you cried. Oh, well, it's 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 he does some good character development and you care about these people. And and uh, it's uh, oh, that's neat. it's just spectacular. Oh, I, I mean, wait. I'm it's everything I want in hard sci fi. Um, it's it is just great. So um, and I and I found enough little 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 typos. I could sort of see, you know, like, like when you go and rewrite a sentence, you you scan it and you leave an apostrophe S because it used to be possessive and now it's no longer, or you get the tense wrong if, if, on part of it. So, you know, I'm a slow, careful reader and I, I found a bunch of stuff. I mean, enough that it was probably worth his while having me read it. And so it's as of yesterday evening, it's back to him. And uh, I don't know what his turnaround for turning it into an ebook will be. I mean, it's one now. I mean, I, you know, it's, oh, that's great. Seems pretty ready to go. What's so. the name of it? Gibraltar. G- Gibraltar Stars, Stars is the third in the trilogy. The first one was Gibraltar Earth, Gibraltar Sun, and then Gibraltar Stars. And what I like about it so much is it's, it's a, it, as is all of his things, there are, they're really unique constructions. Obviously, it's fiction, so it's contrived, but. Um, he he stays very faithful to the rules he sets up. One of the things that really bugged me about Star Trek Next Generation was the Q, that ridiculous, uh, yeah, omnipotent yeah. alien. Yeah, because yeah, if yeah. you have someone who's omnipotent, why even bother? It's just you know, a plot device. It's like... Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a cheat. He can just blink you wherever he wants to blink you or do anything to you. It's like, okay, now suddenly, there, if there aren't any rules, then you don't have any problems. It's a total and cheat. So, and so, you know... Um, Michael McCollum establishes a universe with limitations and and then always builds really intriguing plots around them where you're sitting here thinking, oh, God, okay, uh, what are we what are we going to do now? God. And and but but like, oh, well, I don't I don't want to say too much because I just I can't, I can't recommend it highly enough. And I have had enough feedback from people who have who have heard us talking about him and Peter Hamilton and our other, you know, the other authors that we like so much that, you know, they've been turned on to this stuff and really, really enjoyed the read. So anyway, this trilogy is finished and it's really great. And we can have a podcast now. <laughs> That's good. Lucky thing you finished it. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to cover, got covered today. We're going to cover uh, something you promised last week. Which was uh, cracking, cracking GSM, uh, and you know I've I've we've had people uh, send feedback wondering about this, and we've we've even read Q and As where people are saying, hey, you know, uh, is if I use a cellular modem, uh, how safe is it? Just how by itself, it? how yeah. safe is it? Yeah. And and I've I've known 
that fundamentally it wasn't safe because I've sort of felt, you know, I mean, I've sort of moved through this domain and I remember seeing somewhere that the encryption was based on three shift registers, which immediately says, Oh goodness. And uh, now um, I know exactly how bad it is. And we're going to talk about it today. Mm. Basically I'm glad I'm over on Verizon with, uh, you know, and not using GSM. It's wow. completely cracked. It's completely broken. So any any bad guy could listen in on your conversations. And not for much money. It turns out, oh, I meant to tell you before we started recording, but you can do it now. Uh, www.ettus.com is okay. the group that offer a beautiful, I mean, just spectacular technology cute little software programmable radio receiving set. Oh, neat. Uh, it's based on the, the new radio program or project that John Gilmore has funded for about a third of a million dollars. And basically after a day of sitting here doing the research, if I had any inclination, I, everything that I need to listen in on someone's cell phone conversation all that's all the software. It's all open source. It's beautifully designed. You can program it from Python or 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 C. Um, it everything is there to do it, and you need about a thousand dollars for the radio receiver um, uh, equipment, and then any PC. It's just it's done. Oh man, you know I remember I mean, it's not talking like hundreds of thousands of dollars or corporate or government level. That's that's just not the case. I remember talking to Waz. Uh, some time ago, he used to like to sit and listen to, uh, what was it? He would, he had a little receiver. He would listen to, uh, cell phone conversations, I think, or maybe, oh no, no, no. It was a uh, long distance calls coming over and over satellites, unencrypted over satellites. <laughs> and, uh, and he would just tune in and turn in and listen to the calls. sounds like this is almost as easy. Well, and in, back in the day before we went digital, when we had analog cell phones, um, right. I did run across a little scanner and you could turn it on. And you would only hear one side of the conversation because they they were on the, the the transmit and receiver on different frequencies. But it was really embarrassing what you heard. It's like, oh goodness, yeah. I hope this guy's wife isn't listening yeah, to this. Exactly. I mean, it was really it was just out there in the open. And in fact, I refused to have important conversations with my attorneys over the cell phone because I knew firsthand that it just wasn't secure. And we'll talk about the various, um, well, uh, detail about the technology, why this is so badly broken now, and and what it means in terms of practical attack scenarios. Oh, that's shocking. All right, we're going to get to that in just a second. Before we do, any errata or t- security news? I guess this is the second Tuesday of the month, isn't it? Well, yeah, we're, we're recording a day earlier than we normally do in order to make... Uh, uh, make room for the Mac event, which is happening on the what on the ninth, I guess. Yeah, yeah nine nine is, nine. Is that the, the going to be the tablet or more iPods? Nobody knows, of course, because Apple doesn't say. But uh, the 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 general consensus is, is seems to be the tablet will be next year. These will be just iPods. Yeah, that's sort of what I've heard too. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so yes, we're we're standing on Tuesday, and as of you know half an hour ago, I checked Microsoft's advanced bulletin notification deal, and all they've got is their very generic uh five really bad problems, all remote code execution attacks oh boy Mike, Microsoft has acknowledged what we talked about last week, which was this problem with i i s and the f t p vulnerability, so I want to reiterate to all of our listeners anyone who's for example got i i s which is the is the web server with FTP that's installed, you know, the so-called personal web service, which it's very possible to have running, even if you're not some big corporation who's, who's serving these things. Um, FTP is vulnerable for remote attack. So you absolutely want to shut that down. Microsoft is not expected to have a fix for it by today. It's not one, as far as we know, it's not one of these five critical bulletins because it's happened much too quickly for them to respond. They have said they will fix it as soon as they have a patch available, meaning probably an out of cycle patch because this is potentially a big enough problem that they're not going to let this thing languish for long. Um, But as, as we're recording this, we're expecting five critical bulletins from Microsoft. I've got them. If you want me to read just the headlines of it. Oh, sure. Vulnerability in J script scripting engine, your favorite 
Yep, JavaScript. Love that. Vulnerability and DHTML editing component ActiveX control. This is another remote code execution. Yep. Vulnerabilities in Windows media far- format. Oh, that's not good. Could allow remote code execution. Um, vulnerabilities in TCP IP. Ooh. Okay. Privately reported vulnerabilities in TCP IP. The vulnerabilities allowed remote code execution if an attacker sends specially crafted packets over the network to a computer with a listening service. Oh, goodness. That's Firewall will protect you. Okay. Firewall. Well, yeah, if you've got one. They say firewall best practices and standard default firewall configurations can help protect networks. Interesting. I can't wait. Well, we'll we'll definitely have some news about that next week when I know what's going on with that, because that sounds really important. This is Windows Vista Server 2008, uh, also important for 2000 Service Pack 4, Windows Server 2003. Mm. Wow. And finally, vulnerability in wireless LAN autoconfig service could allow remote code execution. We've been telling people to remove that anyway. That's That had a problem before. And it's just dumb. It's one of these things that, you know, it's always upset me that Microsoft has this stuff turned on by default, even though the majority of users, just like universal plug and play, the majority of users aren't aren't using it, don't need it. But it's there just in case. And whoops, it's vulnerable. Most, almost all of these look like they're Vista specific. That's interesting. Not And so... It's it's interesting because before we began recording, you were you were asking me hypothetically whether I expected now that we have Windows Seven with its you know presumably enhanced security, if these problems are going to be going away. And my my reaction was, uh, I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, and so here's Vista that's you know got new problems in it. Yeah. Uh, almost all of these are critical for Vista. Now, I don't think I don't know what do they push patches yet for seven. Um, I do know that when you install a new seven, it automatically, yeah. I mean, it, it, there's already updates for it, even though it's not been released. I've, I've, I have installed the RTM, the release to manufacturing version. Right. And immediately upon getting it going, it's like, okay, let's go do some updates. Oh, here they are. Right. And yep. we do get updates, but that, I think those are not part of the second Tuesday cycle yet. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. I, I don't expect that to happen until it's, you know, until it is in fact released. Okay. Wow. Well, now, wait a minute. That's I'm trying to remember whether I got updates. I think if you have Windows 7 running, then the system says, oh, you're a Windows 7 user. You're, you know, early bird. But right. here's your updates. Hmm. So I think it's part. Of, I, I think it's already running. Doing it. Yeah. Well, yeah. We're only a month away. Yes. Time flies. Wow. Um, also, I wanted to mention to any users of OpenOffice that multiple vulnerabilities have been disclosed in the word.doc format, uh, they are remote execution, remote code execution attacks. So I know that people who have like said, okay, we're not going to follow Microsoft any longer with Office. We're going to go to open Office. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a beautiful piece of work. There are problems there and patches are available. So if you're an open Office user, it's time to go check for updates and keep yourself current because you want to make sure that those don't get you. Although I think it's, you know, the... The attack target size is smaller for open office users than for like Microsoft office users, but still everyone's trying to to uh, exploit these things these days. Um, also, the latest update to the Mac OS, so-called Snow Leopard update, which brings us to version 10.6. We were down in the 10.5s uh, up until now, so we knock up to you know, that second digit. Um, and what's in the news is that unfortunately, when you do bring yourself up to 10.6 with Snow Leopard, it brings along a known vulnerable previous version of of Adobe slash Macromedia Flash Player, which it installs, um, which is known to be insecure and so, downgrades you even if you have an updated version. Precisely. Which is I mean, exactly. It, over, it overwrites the the yeah. the current version with an older one, which is known to be insecure. So I wanted to let our our listeners know that they're going to want to update Flash after installing Snow Leopard um, in order to fix that. Yeah, and there's, last, just, there's a bit you know there's a bit of debate over whether that was a good practice or not. <laughs> uh, which, uh, well, the problem is the Adobe patch came out two weeks before they went gold. On the Snow Leopard. Right. So they, I think, completely reasonably 
said, well, we haven't had time to test this. I, I don't disagree. I, I can you can easily imagine that they had basically a ready to go release to manufacturing build and image. Right. And it's like, OK, well, look, uh, we'll just let Flash update itself afterwards. And then what we don't know is how necessary it was to downgrade the existing version of Flash. Uh, you know, I guess that depends on the installer and how the upgrade was performed. And exactly. Stuff. I was going to say that it's, to my mind, it wasn't deliberate. They were just probably overwriting everything in the system with their own stuff. Right. And so they said, right. okay, let's just, you know, we're installing OS X 10.6, you know, stomp on whatever's here and replace it with, with stuff that is what we now think is current. And in this case, it wasn't current. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so and, and, so no no harm no foul now because you know about it, and I presume Apple will push it. I don't know, maybe Apple won't. They, I think they think this is Adobe's issue. Oh yeah, I would say it's Adobe's issue, and of course, Flash does inform its users from time to time. I would just say if it's if you're able to, if you know you're potentially a victim of this, then it's worth updating the latest version of Flash after. You have installed Snow Leopard since it will have moved you back a bit. And again, I don't think it's it's not the end of the world. It's not like a flaw in TCP. <laughs> um, so, you know, well, there are exploits. There are, there are exploits out there. You know, one thing, I and this is a side note, but I, I think a really great side note, Firefox in its latest version. Mm-hmm. Which is, I think, I, that was my next point. I'll Leo. let you go. Because <laughs> <laughs> it happened to me and I was so pleased. Yeah, the, the currently in beta... Both the the version 3.0 um, uh, chain and the 3.5 chain upgrade chain of Firefox and next versions will begin warning users if their version of the Flash plugin is out of date. So so Firefox is beginning to take responsibility, at least in the case of Flash, you know, like a major high usage plugin for making sure that it's current as sort of as an extra benefit, an extra security benefit for its users, which I think is, you know, very cool. Yeah. Yeah. That is really nice. Um, and, and again, not their responsibility, but, uh, but since you're the browser, um, and you know what's going on, why not? Yeah. And I had no errata this week. Um, I did have just a fun little, uh, uh, anecdote to share with our listeners. I, it was a, it was a subject that we received through our our sales email uh, titled a note of appreciation. Um, he said, "Dear Steve and Company, this is someone whose name is Barnett." He said, "I purchased Spinrite Six back in December of '07, so wow, two and a half years ago, and up until well, actually two and three quarters years ago, up until this week, I really didn't find a need for it. We had a terrible thunderstorm come through here Monday." And while we didn't take a direct hit, apparently the bolts, I guess he means the bolts of lightning, were close enough to produce EMF in the network wiring. The damage was limited to one router and a very important server. Apparently the surge got through the UPS and scrambled the boot volume enough to fill the event log with disk alerts. A closer look revealed that the bad sector table on the disk itself was damaged. I have good backups, but it takes forever to restore that large box. So I gave Spinrite a shot at it first. I set Spinrite to level four and just let it run. Six hours later, Spinrite reported success. The stats in Spinrite showed that there were 1,310 bad sectors recovered. Is that a lot? Yeah. Okay. That's, I mean, for, to, to have it, to have, I mean, Spinrite can be recovering sectors um, but my guess is that this bolt of lighting, lightning sort of tipped the machine over, but that it was already close to having problems. That, to me, that feels like long-term, you know, accumulated problems that Spinrite came along and said, well, I'm glad you're running me now. Let's fix all of this stuff. So he says, I rebooted the box, and it's been purring like a kitten ever since. As you can imagine, I'm one very happy user. Yay! So, yeah, another fun story. Yay, that's really great news. All right, we're going to talk about, uh, in just a second, we're going to talk about um, getting, <laughs> cracking GSM. Yeah, which, so switching back to landlines. Yeah, <laughs> that might be the, the subtext, the subtitle. Uh, why you don't want to use a cell phone for anything important. And uh, by the way, if you're using an iPhone, you're using GSM. 
If you're mm-hmm. on T-Mobile or any AT&T phone, you're using GSM. Um, and I suppose at the end, I'll ask you if you think that uh, CDMA, which is the competing technology used by Verizon and Sprint, is as vulnerable. But before we do that, that's what we call a tease. Before we do that, I want to tell you about the great folks that go to my PC. This is Citrix, of course, and Citrix does such great work. I've known them for so long, and I have been such a fan of their stuff. Um, They've been advertising with this show and all of our shows for a couple of years, with my radio show for five years. Uh, But I've known them for maybe 10 or 15 years, ever since Ed Iacobucci and I, uh, and Gina Smith introduced me to Ed Iacobucci at, uh, at a Comdex in the 90s. And even then, I was so impressed by his skills, his understanding of the internals of Windows. No surprise that Windows licensed from Citrix were the remote desktop. But Citrix has gone well beyond that. And go to my PC as an example of what can really be done when you really focus on usability, on speed, on security, and reliability. You know, with traffic these days being so such a pain, uh, you know, a lot of people are trying to avoid getting stuck in traffic. They like to maybe go home a little bit early or maybe go into work a little bit late. And and one of the things I know that keeps many people from doing that is that they need what's on that office computer. And this is another great use for go to my PC. I like to highlight different ways you might be able to use it. Put it right now. If you're at work right now <clears throat> listening to this uh, or, or wherever, if you're at the computer, you want remote access to it doesn't have to be work. Go to go to my slash security. Now, before I'm done talking, you'll have it installed. You just sign up for an account. It's free. For the first 30 days. So you sign up for an account. You download the software, which takes two minutes. There is no firewall configuration. No, there's not. No router configuration. It uses NAT traversal. So it just handles it automatically. And yet it's completely secure. 128-bit SSL, uh, computer to computer. So it's never unencrypted, this traffic. Uh, so now you've got it installed. Go home early today. Beat the traffic. Go Come in to work later. Uh, get work done maybe on a Sunday evening after the, you know, after dinner and, and, you know, everybody's watching TV and you can just sit out there on your laptop and get some work done. Answer those emails, clear that inbox. You can run any program. You can send emails. You can access any network resource all from home, from the road, from the airport, the hotel, even the insecure Internet cafe. Go to my PC, the award-winning remote access service from Citrix. Absolutely free, no extra hardware, no configuration. It just works. Go to gotomypc.com slash security now, right now, and try it free for 30 days. Look, I got to warn you, once you get used to it, you're going to get hooked. You will be a subscriber, but at least the first 30 days are free. Give it a try. Go to mypc.com slash security now. We are so grateful to them for their support of the Security Now program. Thank you, Citrix. So now, let's see, GSM. So this is this applies to current GSM phones, right? This is not... Yeah, GSM, right. well, it, it applies to the world. Every, GSM, because yes, everybody uses it. The acronym is Global System for Mobile. Um, that's what GSM, Global System for Mobile Communications, GSM. Okay. It currently has 3 billion users, <clears throat> excuse me, worldwide, um, GSM has 80% of the cell phone market, um, spread through eight through 200 countries. Um, there's a GSM Alliance that are the group that, that sort of hold the spec and manage the spec though. Everything about this is worrisome yeah. from a, I mean, from the day, from day one, the fact that they were keeping this algorithm their cipher a secret rather than allowing it to be exposed publicly tells you i mean it's like the first thing to worry about we've talked often about the dangers of relying on security through obscurity it's not that some obscurity can't also be useful but relying on the the obscurity is something you never want because nothing remains obscure forever Especially, and we've also talked about this, when every single cell phone user has a handset which is able to decrypt GSM. I mean, by definition, it's just like DVD players running in your living room that are decrypting Blu-ray. Well, that didn't last very long, Blu-ray encryption. Similarly, everyone with a cell phone is holding the technology to do the decryption because it has to in order for them to have the conversation. So it wasn't long before the so-called 
cipher algorithm in GSM was reverse engineered. And it's we've also talked, for example, about the problems that WEP, the wired equivalent privacy, the, the original oldest version of the Wi-Fi cipher had. The problem was that it was designed at a time when we didn't have today's level of RAM, CPU power, um, uh, power saving technology. So the designers deliberately came up with a, a, an algorithm sparse approach. And unfortunately, GSM was designed back with that same philosophy in that same era because it's a it's an old spec it's it's back from the 80s the the idea is again very much like wi-fi i mean it's it's or like web's wi-fi it is a a pseudo random bit stream cipher meaning that it's not a block cipher we've talked about you know um, various types of crypto many times in the past it's not a block cipher where you take a a, a block of bits and, an, and a sophisticated algorithm turns it into another block of bits where there's no way in, on examining it to see what the transform is between those. Instead, this is a an XORing approach where you have a generator of pseudo-random data where bit by bit you XOR, you exclusive OR, the output of this generator with the data you want to encrypt. and when you, as we've also said before, when you do that, when you exclusive or essentially you are, you're pseudo randomly flipping the bits of the so-called plain text to create the cipher text. Then the the person at the other end has is able to generate exactly the same pseudo random bit stream. So they flip the bits. In, in exactly the same bits that you flipped, they flip back, which again takes that cipher text and returns it to plain text. That is, you know, decrypts it. So it's it's conceptually simple. And if you have a source of really good pseudo-random bits, that is, if your if the pseudo-random data generator is high quality, there's really nothing wrong with it, except that. There are problems with so-called known plain text attacks, and we've talked about this actually just recently when we were talking about um, the the um, the attacks on on Wi-Fi, the the sort of the slowly encroaching attacks. Remember, we, uh, two weeks ago we right. talked about the TKIP. Right. I guess it was last week. Yeah, uh, the TKIP attacks, where they rely on the fact that you the attacker knows some of the bytes in the packet. Well, if you know what the bytes in the packet are and you know what the cipher text is, since the since the relationship is just an exclusive or, you can exclusive or what you know and what you see as ciphered and get the the key stream out of that. So this whole XORing is just not a very secure way, fundamentally not a secure way to do things, but it's incredibly inexpensive. It takes, you know, a few transistors, literally, to perform an exclusive OR operation. So it's because it's so economical in terms of hardware implementation, and even if you did it in software, the same thing, that it tends to get used by older technologies. So where do we get... Well, first of all, I want to I say that what happened in the news recently that... We talked about a couple of weeks ago that caused me to say, "Okay, I'm finally going to talk about GSM." Was there was this this you know news that some that it, within a couple of months we were there was going to be publicly available open source technology to allow anyone to decrypt cell phone conversations. Well, if that may well happen, but the what's what's annoying to this hacker group is that these problems have been known for a decade and have been poo-pooed. And, and in fact, this GSM alliance is still poo-pooing these, these, these issues. In response to this recent news story, 
They said, among other things, that this would require the construction of a large lookup table of approximately two terabytes. This is equivalent to the amount of data contained in a 20-kilometer-high pile of books, they said. Oh, oh, yeah, and of course, we'll be using books to store those tables. And monks to transcribe the data. (laughs) What the hell? (laughs) That's just FUD. Or what's the opposite of FUD? (laughs) Well, exactly. And I'm thinking two terabytes. And then I I think about your cottage up there. I'm just looking at one hard drive. It's two terabytes. Exactly. Come on. Um, And then they said that they said, however, before a practical attack could be attempted, the GSM call has to be identified and recorded from the radio interface. So far... This aspect of the methodology has not been explained in any detail, and we strongly suspect the team developing the intercept approach has underestimated its practical complexity. So when I saw that, I said, okay, let's, you know, and I wanted for our own listeners to sort of bring this home, to, to make this real. It's like, okay, how do you get this stuff out of the air? Because, of course, before we can start deciphering anything, we have to have something to decipher. And, you know, we've all got cell phones, but they don't have digital interfaces that send their bit streams out. Well, it turns out all of that work has been done for us, Leo. There's a, an incredibly cool technology um, called a USRP. I love it that you would, be, you would tend to say USERP. Uh, <laughs> the, U, the USRP, the Universal Software Radio Peripheral. It's produced by a company called Etus, E-T-T-U-S. That's the guy's last name. So www.ettus.com will take you to his site. It's, it's open hardware in the same spirit as open software, meaning that <clears throat> he's just producing it, not making a ton of money, but doing all of the hardware engineering work for people who don't want to do it themselves, but somebody who wanted to save some money and had the ability, could certainly do that as well. It is a, it's a hardware platform, literally about a seven inch by seven inch square circuit board. The first, first iteration, the USRP one or just USRP had a USB two interface. Um, You can then get daughter boards that, that span various, um, uh, ranges of radio frequencies. And this thing runs all the way from zero, that is from DC, essentially, to 5.9 gigahertz. So that's everything you could want. You could ex- you can ex- use it to experiment with GPS signals that are at a couple gigahertz. Um, with, you know, AM through Wi-Fi and beyond. This is a general purpose radio transceiving peripheral. The second version has a, a gigabit Ethernet interface rather than USB 2.0 because they wanted to be able to operate at larger bandwidths and so have a greater data flow in and out of this board. The first one costs $700. The second one is $1,400. So we're no longer talking hundreds of thousands of dollars and arcane hardware and stuff that only large corporations and governments can afford. You know, you can go on their site, you can click the button, buy this, then they have daughter boards, which configure it for different ranges of frequencies. And there's documentation about which one you want for GSM. So you get one of those and then you get an antenna with a cord and you plug it into your laptop. So is is this legal? It is. Everything is legal, even decrypting your own conversations just not somebody else's so buying the equipment and recording the calls is completely legal yeah buying it the knowledge the ciphers every every stage of this is legal unless you decrypt somebody else's conversation and and of course you wouldn't want to do that by mistake um so so this notion that it's this is difficult to do is just no longer holds any water. There's also a fantastic project called the GNU Radio Project. John Gilmore um, has invested about a third of a million dollars in funding this. 
it is a it is a general purpose software radio project developing all of the modules that go behind this piece of hardware. Um, it's of course open source also lots of people contributing and doing all kinds of cool stuff. So for example, I mean, you literally could build your own GPS system. There's a company called path intelligence, which uses this board, the, the software from the GNU radio project to track people in shopping malls to, to aggregate data about the foot traffic patterns. They have a couple of these radios stationed around the mall. And by using literally the timing information from all the cell phones that everybody in the mall is walking around with, they're able to in the, to, to track individual people and they, of course, don't care who these people are, but they, you know, cell phones are generating their little handshake with with the cell towers constantly. So that allows them, for example, to see how many, you know, like how much uh, traffic the various restrooms get, who stands in front of what window for how long, how many people go up the stairs versus go up the elevator and or the escalator, and there are so they're able to basically track individual people using this technology. So. Again, we're now at the hobby level. We're at the we're at the level where a hobbyist with a couple thousand dollars can can needs to know nothing about radio and even hardware and even all of the pre-processing steps for 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 demultiplexing the data and and analyzing it and performing spectrum analysis and finding the channels and everything. All of that's been done. There's there's even some people have taken they're they're not at the GPL um, uh, licensing, but they are so, so they're proprietary licenses, but free, but they're open source and free for personal use. Where turnkey packages to to pull all this data together have been produced. There's there's even one which ab- abstracts this USRP, this Universal Software Radio Peripheral making it look like a network device so that Wireshark, our, our, our favorite uh, packet capture utility, is able to capture GSM packets and decode them and show you all the bits and all the protocols and everything going on in, in a stream that you capture. So, I mean, we're, we're way far along in, in making this possible. You know, in my opinion, this GSM alliance is... And, you know, they're saying what they have to say politically, but if they really believe what they're saying, that they're in serious denial because this is no longer, you know, James Bond government level sci fi stuff. It would be entirely possible for a a company who wanted to do some surveillance of a competitor to equip a van with some of this equipment spending only, you know, only tens of thousands of dollars, park it across the street from a competitor, aim their antennas at the competitor's building and spend a day just streaming in, sucking in all of the cell phone traffic that is is uh, is being transacted by the employees within the building and then drive the van off and decrypt those conversations offline afterwards and find out what was being said. I mean, th- it is no longer difficult to do it it's entirely possible so the problem is that not surprisingly this is old technology which was built to be safe enough then one of the other concepts that we've we've talked about several times in the last few weeks is this in fact it started with this notion of how long was a voting machine secure we talked about the the idea that Security has a lifetime, and you'll remember that one of the questions we dealt with in the Q&A last week, some guy said, well, if I stored something that was encrypted today, then then waited 10 years or 20 years, assuming that that, that encrypted data was still valuable, what happens if, if decryption technology and cracking technology gets so much better in the intervening decades that I can then decrypt something from history that's valuable that I wasn't able to decrypt at the time that it was current. 
And yeah, you know, that's, we that's, had that question uh, last week, didn't we? Yep, it's a really good question. And and so similarly, you know, here when we talk about you know the, the, this GSM alliance is poo pooing the idea that you would need two terabytes of data. Well, in back in 1980, that was you know terabytes. It's like wait a minute, how many zeros is that? Now you, you're like using those things for doorstops, Leo. You know those drives. So so we have we have seen. An increase in the practicality of attacks. Um, now, the technology that GSM uses for for generating pseudo random data is unfortunately weak, and they did they did rely on it being kept secret, which of course is not something you can rely on. Um, all these secrets are going to get out, going to get out over time. Um, the very there were assumptions over the years about about the exact algorithm which were locked up in the silicon of chips and at one point someone physically reverse engineered the algorithm from the chips and figured out exactly what was going on the and, and it uses a technique that we've never talked about before um it's called a so it's a so-called linear feedback shift register LFSR. The idea is you have a, a a first of all a shift register is a sort of a you can think of it visually as a long string of bits contained in some in a, in a hardware register, and when on the event of a so-called clock pulse, this shift register moves. All of the bits, the ones and zeros, one place to either the right or left, depending on whether it's shifting right or shifting left. But for the purpose of this, let's imagine that this is shifting to the right. So, so you have a, a string of little bit cells upon receiving a clock pulse. Every one and zero moves one cell to the right. Well, you need something to, to fill the, set, the 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 gap that was opened that is if the if the bit in the first position on the far left moved to the second position then you need to decide whether now what is the first bit of the shift register is going to be a 1 or a 0 what they do is they take some few bits stationed in various places in the shift register and exclusive or those bits. So um, often, for example, it's the last three of like the far right bits of, of the shift register. The last three bits they will be exclusive ORD, meaning that if if you like if you count up the number of ones in the last three positions, if it's an odd number, then the result is a one, and if it's an even number or zero, then the result is a zero. And so you. Feed that back into the front of the shift register. Well, this is a, it's an approach that's been known for a long time. It's once upon a time before we had really mature cryptography. It was people looked at that and thought, oh, wow, we're never going to be able to figure out what those bits are doing. The idea being that when you set the shift register up and then you run it, that is, you clock it and clock it and clock it, the, there's a complex pattern of bits that ends up getting shifted in to the front of the shift register and after 19 clocks for example in the case of a shift register was 19 bits long well then then you begin to get bits at the end that scramble up what goes in the beginning and before long it gets pretty complex so what gsm uses is three of of these shift registers one is 19 bits long the second is 22 bits long and the third is 23 bits long. So you've got three different shift registers. It's important that the period of the shift register, that is the length of the shift register, are, are different. And they're different in a complex way. This 19, 22, and 23, they, they came out of, you know, because, because 19 and 23 are both prime numbers. So they're going to have a, a very long period before they if you imagine these sort of sort of rotating around before they come back into their original synchronization so the problem is that what seemed really complex in 1980 
and like, oh, no one's ever going to figure this out. Modern crypto, cryptographic analysis just looks at it and says, okay, you know, what are we going to do after lunch? Because this is just not difficult to deal with at all. The, the people that are, that are doing the cryptography um, have come up with a whole bunch of approaches for attacking this. Um, there's all kinds of weaknesses in the way this works. The system, by coincidence, 19 plus 22 plus 23, that is the sum of the lengths, is exactly 64. So one of the problems is that the entire state of the shift registers at any time has only 64 bits of complexity. Well, we know that that's no longer enough complexity. We're at, we're to the point with modern computing technology and modern storage and using for example the graphics processing units in in graphics cards 64 bits is is worrisome. It turns out that it is it is possible to use pre-computation attacks against um this pseudo random generator. We've talked about pre-computation attacks before, the so-called rainbow tables. Um, a pre-computation attack is one where you you do a lot of work ahead of time to to generate some tables which you're you're able to then use afterwards to to um, uh, to essentially reverse an unreversible function. For example, uh, rainbow tables have been used with hash functions. Where, as we know, with a hash function, you feed a bunch of stuff in and you end up with a result. Well, for example, if you were to hash a whole bunch of common passwords, you would end up with a rainbow table of the results of the hashing. So you, you simply you look for the, the value you're searching for in the rainbow table and it tells you what the input was that gave you that value. Turns out that the same kind of thing can be done with this GSM stream cipher. There's a pre-computation attack, and it's it was published thoroughly, completely in 2003. A bunch of researchers laid it all out. They said, "Here's how we crack GSM. We can either have I think they had like like, like a tr- a time complexity trade-off. You'd have to listen to Two minutes of, of, of GSM cell phone traffic, and then you could crack the key that was used to encrypt this. Um, after two minutes, you, you could crack it in one second. Or if you listen to um, if you listen to two seconds of GSM cell phone traffic, then you can crack it in two minutes. So you get if you have more input data, it takes less time. Less input data, more time, um, and um, they use then um, uh, tables exactly like we were talking about. Basically, pre-computation tables, the so-called two terabytes that the GSM Alliance was poo-pooing and saying, "Well, you know, uh, you know, no one's ever going to be able to produce this." Well, this cracking gang is putting together a project to very much like the uh, SETI at home project, where a bunch of people who've got unused graphics cards that they, they have code that runs on the NVIDIA chipset graphics um, running 32 threads in the graphics card pre- uh, doing pre-computation attacks, putting together um, essentially these tables, which will then once they're assembled be freely available to anyone. They haven't really, they haven't really done any breakthrough work themselves, I, I congratulate them on taking the theoretical papers and making them practical. But and they understand this too. What they what they'll be putting together is 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 the network and the facility um, for making this available. And and right now you're able to download this stuff and and run it on your machine and join the network and and begin cranking out this data. I mean, this is happening today. So. It's it's very clear that even if you didn't go for the distributed hobbyist level approach, that 
a uh, any major corporation that had any need, certainly any government, can can now crack GSM. Um, you're able to due to the due to the availability of this kind of inexpensive hardware, you can just suck in all of the GSM channels that are that are active in a given area just stream them onto hard drives and then you know crack them at your at, leisure, at leisure. Yeah. record them yeah. now crack later yeah i mean it, it is it is absolutely the case that we've got we're using old technology and storage and processing power has advanced to the point that um it, it no longer provides us protection well, and in the GSM Alliance's defense, I mean, obviously, nobody's going to put them in a book. But what they're what they're probably trying to say is it's still a, a bit of a chore. It's not something that some guy with a scanner down the street can do. Um, it's certainly the case. You're, you're right. It's not like you buy a scanner at Radio Shack and you turn it on and, and you listen to random conversations. So at this point, you have to have some motivation to do it. Um there are other attacks which do not require this kind of table. Um, it, I don't want to get into the details of it just because it's, it's, it's really complex. But, for example, it is, if, you, if, you knew somebody who, if you knew somebody who was using a GSM phone and you wanted to crack them, you're able to pretend to be a cell tower to their phone. Um, if you monitor them initiating a conversation, the way the way the GSM handshake functions is that the cell tower comes up with a 128-bit pseudo-random one-time token. It gives it to the to the customer and says, um, using the pre-shared key, the uh, in the SIM card is a 128-bit pre-shared key. The cell, the cell tower who knows the customer's account has no, no, knows what SIM card they have with the pre-shared key. So the cell tower gives them a 128-bit token, which is a one-time token, says, use your pre-shared key to encrypt this that I've given you and give me the result to prove that you're you. So there's, a, there's an authentication phase. And unfortunately, the same data is used to produce the session key, which is a big mistake. You never want to use the same the, the same data for authentication and encryption, which is a mistake that GSM has unfortunately made. And that's a weakness because it allows someone who's listening to that, this random number that comes from the cell tower is in the clear. So if you're listening to that conversation, you can then subsequently appear to be that a cell tower, there is no protection against reuse, which is another big problem. We know about the problems of reuse. So you can pretend to be a cell tower, give the same key to the user and and um, and cause them since since the their pre-shared key is static, you give them the you give them the same challenge essentially in this challenge handshake, they will generate the same session key which now you have, and so you're now able to decrypt a conversation that you had previously without any use of two terabytes of tables. There's like all kinds of problems. As I was reading through the the research that's been done about attack after attack after attack on the GSM system, you just sit there with sort of with your head in your hands thinking, oh my goodness, if I were the person who designed this and I was reading where where the state of the art is today in cracking this, I'd just be thinking, whoa, I'm um, embarrassed. But they did the best job they could at the time with the resources that they had. Whoa, I'm embarrassed. (laughs) (laughs) I'm embarrassed for you, man. I'm embarrassed. Oh, yeah. So sad. Don't don't tell anybody else you're the guy who did this. But as you point out, how long ago was this? 20 years ago? I mean, as you point out, it might have been okay then. Two, yeah. The idea of a two terabyte uh, table then might have been, you know, considered. Oh, it was it was. Oh, my God. Back then, Leo, you, you know, we were we had paper cards, right? And paper tape. And well, I guess we were beyond that a little bit. But, but we had, you know, what? Ten megabytes was a big deal. Now, you know, we're you know, you're streaming terabytes of data out of your facility. I've got terabytes. We all have terabytes. It's just that there's been so much change in 
the technology from then to now that I cut these guys some slack. The problem is we're all still using, you know, what is it? Three billion people in 200 countries. 80% of the cell phone market is GSM globally and it's no longer safe. It is, you know, you, yes, absolutely. I don't think anybody is going to be spying on their neighbors or caring, you know, what random conversations are. But if people depended upon it for real security, that becomes a problem. And we've only talked about voice stuff, but this all this applies to SMS. So, for example, there are banks which are now, as we know, yeah. using cell phones right. and and SMS tokens for security, and they're not safe. I I use them all the time. Yeah, that's how I um, how I log into my bank. They ask them again, to send me a token. What's, you know, and what's the ch- what's the chance that some random person is going to be going after you? I agree, it's slim, but targeted attacks. I wouldn't be surprised if before long we begin to see reports of GSM. Cell phone technology, you know, succumbing to specific targeted attacks. It could happen. Yeah. Well, and, and you hit the nail on the head when you said this is the kind of thing a government or, an in, or a business might, might do, uh, you know, uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, Steve Wozniak. <laughs> well, hobbyists, hobbyists, but motivated hobbyists certainly now have this within, within their sure, grasp sure. because all the hardware is it, it exists. You, you, you go to a website, you order the stuff, all the, all the software is open source. The project will be making these rainbow tables available. There's all kinds of more active attacks, not just passive decryption attacks, but active um, man in the middle sorts of attacks that are that GSM is also vulnerable to that I didn't even talk about. Um, It's just it's absolutely um, not something that you could rely on. So I, I at this point, I would say to our listener who asked last week about GSM and or about cell phone uh, internet, I would say, well, this is where you really want to have your own encryption writing on that channel. Mm. You want to have your own tunnel, like an, an SSL connection or a VPN that will protect you from any kind of snooping. Because otherwise, you might as well be using WEP, you know, the right. unencrypted Wi-Fi. <laughs> right. <laughs> what, is, what is your sense of other technologies that are used right now, CDMA primarily? Um, I remember something similar about CDMA. I haven't looked at it closely for comparison. Um, I, like you, I'm curious now to see whether it's the same. Um, but in, in this research, I was just focused on GSM because I wanted to follow up on, on the news of, you know, of what these guys had done. And it turns out what they all they're really doing is they're taking six years old research from 2003 and they're saying, OK, the papers are published. Everyone's still ignoring this. Let's make some noise. Let's let's wake people up to this problem because someone ought to do that. And that's really, I mean, that's the goal of this group is not to foster piracy and hacking, but to, you know, right. basically to challenge this GSM alliance and say, folks, you got to get your acts together here because this is not secure and you're in denial. You have your heads in the sand. Yep. How about data? This is we're talking about voice communications. Data goes over a different channel, right? Um, well, data it's using the same system. Uh, the GPRS is is the is the packet radio uh, mm-hmm, technology, mm-hmm. and it unfortunately uses all the same cipher and the same keys. Oh, wow. One of the things that you're able to do. One of the other attacks is is interesting. There is a weaker version of the cipher. There's there's multiple versions of the stream cipher. The stream cipher is called A5. The authentication algorithm is known as A3, and the um, the key agreement algorithm is A8. Well, this A5 stream cipher can there are variations. There's A5 slash zero, which says no encryption, just in the clear. There's A5 slash one, which was the original strong encryption, but it had export restrictions placed on it. So, as a consequence, phones also support A5 slash 2, which is a deliberately weakened exportable encryption. So, get this, Leo, because this also bears on some of the things we've talked about in the past. Even though you may have a phone using the A5 slash 1 strong encryption, it also supports A5 slash 2. 
because what if you happen to roam to a carrier that wasn't supporting strong encryption? Well, the phone would downgrade itself to A5 slash 2. Well, it turns out there are active attacks which can be perpetrated where you ping somebody's phone and feign that you're only able to support the slash two, the weak encryption, which is much easier to crack than the than the strong encryption. What we've been talking about is the strongest encryption available. And so you can essentially get the phone to downgrade itself, but A5 slash one and slash two use the same keys. Hmm. So you're able to get the phone to run a weaker cipher, which is much easier to crack and then you're able to gain access to its key. Wow. So it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's very badly broken. It's, it's absolutely not something that we could consider secure. It is far, far shy of state-of-the-art, the, the kind of state-of-the-art crypto that we're used to having, um, you know, in everything else we do. You might have had a hint of that when uh, they gave President Obama a special NSA encrypted phone to use <laughs> that maybe perhaps the government knew there was, you know, some issue. Yeah. And well, they knew it because, you know, they have, they have a closet full of, <laughs> of equipment, which is, you know, listening in on everyone's right. cell phone they can, conversation. They can crack it. So uh, well, we might assume the other guys can too. And it's worth mentioning too, that all of this is only the in the air cipher. That is, if our government wanted to listen in our on our phone calls, we I guess we know that after nine eleven that was being done. Um, there are it's much easier to just wait until the cell tower has performed all of the of the of the decryption and turn this back into analog signals and and pick it up there. I mean, you could certainly do that. The problem, of course, is as with ev- everything we talked about this in the context of Wi Fi many times, wireless is tempting because this stuff is in the air and so there are like i said you park a van across the street from your competitor's office and suck in all of the all of the cell phone conversations going on and see what you can glean who knows what you'll overhear it's just it's it's not the case that it's you know as in as insecure as analog but you absolutely should never depend upon its security. I mean, in a in any place where you've got super high valuable conversation, and there there's some reason to believe somebody else might love to know what you're talking about. Especially if you're sending your bank key over your SMS. Yeah, link. and and again, it's also worth mentioning that you know you could just use a big parabolic microphone, parabolic reflector, and a microphone, and and listen to somebody who's in visual range. You might not hear the their side of the the other side of the conversation, but you would get theirs. So there are you know other sort of yeah. analog oh, gosh, yes. real world ways to do this. Gosh, yes, but it's and certainly I, the case. I presume that we're moving to newer technologies anyway uh, over time, and really mostly. I mean, you look, you're not going to redesign GSM and re, re- retrofit all the towers and retrofit all the phones. That's not going to happen. That's the problem. Now, three G is a stronger technology, but the problem is the phones are all able to fall back to the earlier technology, and that provides a backdoor for for the encryption. What you'd really want to do is be able to tell your phone, for example, no longer allow any weak encryption. Unfortunately, the phones are just open, and they're designed to roam and to work wherever they happen to find themselves. When the uh, when there's a, a secure phone like the NSA encrypted phone that the president uses, they probably use the same GSM or CDMA frequencies and channels and technologies, but they encrypt the data. They scramble it. Yes. So the, exactly, they're running a an encrypted tunnel inside of the regular carrier. So if somebody decrypts that, all they're still going to get is highly encrypted. You know, really, really pseudo random noise, right. just gibberish. Yes, and but, and they'll have no way to go any further. They're they're blocked by the tunnel that is that is running inside of the GSM channel. But of course, as with VPN or a, a scrambler technology, both ends have to support it, and that's why it's not generally used. Well, <laughs> it, not only do both end, not only do both ends have to support it, but again, once it comes out the other end, all of that all of that encryption has been stripped off and it's back to plain text again. So right, right. it's so part of the mitigating aspect of this is okay, so you know, what's someone really gonna do who wants to 
uh, know what you're talking about. Maybe they're just going to be in the booth next to you with listen. their ear cocked. With exactly, <laughs> just overhearing your conversation in the old analog world. Just listen. Steve, great, really an interesting subject. Um, fascinating. And of course, ties in if, if, if you, if some of this stuff like rainbow tables leaves you, uh, scratching your head, we covered all of the fundamental technologies in previous episodes. Yep. So you can go back and I know that there are now 212 and this one. So 213 episodes. That's a lot of listening, but you can go back and look at rainbow tables. We talked about that. Uh, we talked about XORing. In the past, we've talked about crypto in general. So you can really get a fundamental education on all this stuff from previous episodes. Well, and we do have the transcripts at GRC and a search for the transcript. So you could put in rainbow tables or XXOR um, in, into the exactly. search and quickly find those instances where we talked about this stuff before. Steve, as always, a pleasure. You'll find uh, the transcripts, the 16 kilobit versions of the show, the show notes, and more at Steve's site, grc.com. That's also where you'll find SpinRite, the, the absolute must-have. There is but one hard drive maintenance utility, the one to get. And, by the way, recovery, too. It's kind of a side effect of, of it. Uh, it does a great job. And all of his freebies, lots of security information, lots of... Um, you know, programs like uh, Shields Up and Shoot the Messenger, Decombobulator, and Wismo. It's all at GRC, Gibson Research Corp, grc.com. And we'll be back. Normally, we record uh, on Wednesdays. So if you want to watch us live at live.twit.tv, tune in at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time, Wednesdays, 1800 UTC. And uh, and you can watch the show then. And, the, and then, of course, we offer it as a, as a, the next day on Thursdays as a uh, iTunes and Zoom and other downloads. It's a podcast, so anybody can get it to us. Podcatching implements, including Listen on the Android phone. Uh, you can find out more about that at twit.tv slash SN. All the protocols are there. Steve, thank you so much. Next week, we will do our 75th Q&A. Wow. So anyone who has questions, please, by all means, go to grc.com slash feedback. And uh, tell me what's on your mind, what you want to hear about, topics, suggestions, questions, and things that I've I skipped over, forgot to mention, so forth. And uh, we'll deal with them next week. And this just in: Windows Seven updates were just pushed out, and <laughs> and one of our chatters is downloading them now. So that, that answers the question. Second Tuesdays for everybody now. Thought that was the case, and we will talk next week about what happened in the world of Microsoft's updates. I want to find out what that TCP IP uh, flaw is. That sounds like a bad one. So we'll have the news of that next week. Thank you, Steve. Thank you all for joining us. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Security Now.